Thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights, a podcast by Lumina Health Partners. In this series, host Daniel J. Marino, Managing Partner of Lumina, talks to top experts and thought leaders in healthcare to help you navigate on the journey to value-based care in the ever-changing landscape of the industry. The goal of this series is to bring you disruptive success strategies by leveraging Lumina's experiences, stories, and insights from working with health professionals and organizations across the country. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to invite you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think about the episode and any questions that are top of mind. Now let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Value-Based Care Insights. I'm your host, Daniel Marino. In today's episode, we're going to spend some time talking about the contracting activities between hospitals, physicians, and our payers. I've been doing managed care contracting for about 15 years, and I can't remember a time that is more challenging in the contract negotiations than it exists right now. There's been a lot of pressure, obviously, placed on hospitals, on physicians, as well as the payers. And I think some of this is really as a result of COVID. COVID's pushed a lot of economic pressures on the hospitals. Costs are going up. We're dealing with an economic, a challenging economic era right now where we're experiencing wage inflation, supply costs are going up. In some cases, it's added anywhere between five to 10% additional costs on hospitals and health systems. And you can't just pass that on to the consumer our reimbursement is fixed. So what we're seeing is hospitals and physicians and so forth are going to the, provide, to the payers and they're saying, well, look, we need help. We need some additional reimbursement in order just to, to, to maintain our margins, let alone being able to grow additional, additional revenue or, or additional margins. And yet the payers are pushing back. And again, as a result of COVID, if you recall what happened, we, we shifted a lot of the care that was done in the hospital to the outpatient arena. And and we had to because, of course, we needed to take care of the patients and address the patient's needs. But what that allowed the payers to do was to be able to say, well, you know, why do you need to do this in the hospital when you could be doing this in the outpatient arena? And by the way, it's cheaper and we're going to cut some of your level of reimbursement. So when you think about some of the dynamics that are driving these challenges in the contract negotiation, I think it's coming down to a couple of things. I think one, the economic pressures that we're in right now. I think two, the shifts in sight of care that we've experienced and are continuing to experience is changing the reimbursement structure. And then I think the third area that I'm seeing a lot is payers are continuing to want the providers, hospitals, physicians, and so forth, to assume a lot more of the risk, the medical risk of the patient. The payers don't want to assume that. So when you take all of those things into consideration, not to mention the shifts in in technology and and so on and so forth, it's really providing for a very challenging negotiating period between hospitals, between physicians and their payers. Well, to help work us through this is my colleague, Cliff Frank, Cliff's got a tremendous amount of experience in managed care contracting. He's been doing this for many, many years, and I'm sure has one or two opinions on this subject. Cliff, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. So Cliff, as we're thinking about 
hospitals right now and the economic pressures that they're in and ways of being able to, to negotiate a fair and equitable managed care contract, a, a fair and equitable reimbursement stream to at least be able to maintain certain margins. What are you seeing in, in some of these challenges? What are the, some of the top of mind things that are really creating some, some challenging areas in the contract negotiation? The first is that payers are desperate to move cases away from hospitals to lower cost community or freestanding alternatives. You saw this with COVID around hospital at home and suddenly, you know, it's covered. It's covered by Medicare, it's covered by Medicare Advantage and private payers. And if a hospital does a hospital at home, all they're moving is the patient from the left pocket to the right pocket, and yet they still have the cost, the fixed costs associated with the right pocket. The reimbursement, the payers are actually putting a lot of pressure to, to shift that reimbursement, right? So the reimbursement Absolutely. is obviously the side less. of care pressures are tremendous. Yeah. And it's not just focused at individual hospital. Payers are also using the medical necessity provisions of their medical policy determinations to push services away from hospitals, hospital-based uh, outpatient infusion, hospital-based radiology for CT, MRI, hospital, even hospital-based uh, outpatient surgery for easy surgeries. All the payers are pushing hard on all those services to either prohibit them or deny except by some sort of clinical reason that substantiates why the patient is at risk and needs to be hospital outpatient, and also using the benefit designs to drive people, patients away from hospitals wherever they can. This is getting much worse and much more um, predominant. The other thing that payers are doing is just deny, deny, deny. So it's not so much that, that it, it's not just that they've done these policies, but just because it's Tuesday, they'll deny a bunch of claims and make the payers, I mean, make the providers jump through a bunch of hoops to get their money. So the friction costs have, in some cases, doubled, particularly in Medicare Advantage and in some of the Medicaid managed care plans. It's ridiculous. It seems like with many of the payers, they sort of have kind of a open-ended free will to, to change some of the, the policies on medical services. You know, I was talking to one of my clients, and she was doing an analysis on the reimbursement for certain surgical services and couldn't figure out why their overall net collection rate on, on certain procedures was low for a couple of the payers this year compared to last year. So when then she dug into it a little bit, what she noticed was there was a lot of denials for things this year for things that normally got paid. And when we drilled down into it, what we noticed was the payers changed a lot of their policies, posted it on their portals, never really advised the, the providers, and just denied it with a response code that says, you need to go back and, and check the administrative policy. It's non-payable. Yeah. And they have, the plans have gotten very aggressive about that. I have a, I have a uh, colleague who recorded 2,200 medical policy changes by United Healthcare in one year. My goodness. 
2200. It's amazing. Yeah. So I want to get back to that that shift in Cytocare because I really think that's a that's a big one. You know, when when we were in COVID, I give a lot of credit to the the physicians and and certainly the hospitals. Um, they had to move very quickly to obviously manage the COVID patients that were occurring in their acute facilities while still trying to take care of the needs of the patient. And of course they did this outpatient. They, they did this remotely and, and they did what they needed to do to take care of the patients. And, and clearly it was the right thing to do for the patients in the industry, but it really created some challenges on the reimbursement side. What are you seeing in terms of how hospitals can counter that? How is it, I mean, are, are you seeing some cited service differentials? Are they able to maybe pop up a little bit more? You're never gonna get the same rate as you're gonna get on the acute side, but there has to be a way that we can at least cover some of that, that revenue opportunity. What are you seeing? I'm seeing a lot of hospital margins collapse. Yeah. Because frankly, the imaging um, service line is very profitable for hospitals. So is outpatient surgery. So is home in, uh, hospital infusions. And they're all under direct assault. So that what they're gonna have is lower margin or no margin inpatient business that's critical care and, and not much else because the plans are really trying to strip it away. It's almost like, you know, last year or the year before was as good as it gets because now, um, and the other people who are starting to play in this, in this arena are the employers. They're mad as hell because they're the ones who have to pay these outrageous bills in their mind. A $2,500 ER visit to, to, to get a boo-boo taken care of, it just makes them crazy. Right. So right. You, see how, you see employers embra embracing reference-based pricing um, where basically they send the hospital a check at 130% of Medicare and say, sue me if you don't like it. <laughs> um, it the, there are all kinds of um, oh, combative strategies that are, that are being played out now that even five years ago, you would never have thought. Who would have thought that medical policy is a weapon? Right, in, in and it clearly battle? is now, no doubt about that. Well, and, and to, to their defense, that the employers and to some extent the payers, they are locked into year-long contracts or more when they issue rates to a, an employer. They issue the rates in July, and it's not till the following January 18 months later that they can change the premiums. Right. So, so they're playing catch up. Right. And in some cases, you know, the plans are pretty fat and happy. Um, in other cases, plans are not, but they're looking at 12% trends and the, their customer, these employers are going to have a really hard time keeping up with it. And the, yeah. and, and feeding in additional rate increases to the, to the hospitals is not in the equation. No, it's not in the equation. So, you know, when you think about that, a lot of the payers are saying, fine, hospital, if you want an increase, then we're gonna tie you to some level of performance. We're gonna add a risk component to that. And what I've been seeing is some of the, the payers are out there and they're, they're 
sort of wagging some pretty good carrots based on performance, but it's it comes with some downside risk. And if you don't perform, you're going to have to pay the plans back. And I and I think it really it scares the hospital CFOs to death because a lot of them feel like they're not ready for risk. You need to be able to increase your level of reimbursement. So I guess I guess the question really here, Cliff, is, is twofold, right? Are, are you seeing these hospitals moving forward into risk? And then if the answer, you know, based on that is, is yes or no, how do the hospitals start to position themselves for success, either assuming a level of risk or negotiating different types of contracts that position them for risk in a year or two down the road? So two points. Um, the first is that if the hospital is going to take risk on its own and the doctors are still um, in, in today's world of more is better, um, it's pretty easy for the hospital to end up upside down. Mm -hmm. And so you really need that the, the clinically integrated network has to kind of step up. Uh, and most hospitals have a CIN now. And if they don't, they need to build one. But having that clinical financial alignment among all the, the parties really opens up a lot of opportunities. Right. So you really need to focus on utilization management, right? And it needs to be efficient utilization management. And I think making sure that your utilization is not too high because we're used to that in the fee-for-service world, but it needs to be kind of more appropriate towards the care that's being delivered. Well, that's, that's exactly right. But to really bring that about, particularly inside the hospital-employed physician population, the comp model for that That's medical group needs to be something other than straight RVUs because that's just a churn and burn model. So there's got to be some qualitative or other kind of non-utilization driven uh, metrics to drive physician comp. Right. That said, there's one other piece that for hospital partners and physicians to, to a, I guess, a similar extent, uh, is that your high friction payers, the ones like th that are your, your Medicaid managed cares that only know how to deny any ER visit that's level one, two, or three, um, or every third um, inpatient admit, just because it's Tuesday, those friction costs are a big percent of revenue associated with the Medicaid or Medicare Advantage uh, revenue base for both facilities yeah. and providers. I mean, it can be 20 or 30 points. Absolutely. So if you step into a risk deal, you know, right away, one of the conditions is, well, then you pay her, get out of my hospital because you know, I don't really care about your utilization management decisions anymore because I'm paying for it. So get out. And right. in so doing, you reduce a whole lot of these friction costs, which gives you kind of a, a, a margin for error. Um, and then, of course, you can lay off the big claim, the, the one or two big claims that can blow you up uh, onto some sort of reinsurance arrangement. And then, you know, his, the, these populations don't spike so much unless there's a big change in enrollment and you can protect yourself from that as well in, in how you negotiate the contract. But the idea is start with your payers who are giving you the most trouble 
because right. at least you you pick up the uh, uh, a good gain by eliminating high friction costs. So when you think about the friction costs, I mean, obviously it's twofold, right? It impacts your reimbursement, but it also impacts your internal costs of reprocessing. Absolutely. How successful are our hospitals, our managed care groups in negotiating some of that out of the contracts? And I'm thinking about some of these administrative costs, like the pre-certification, pre-authorizations that have to occur. God, it's a pain doing some of those things, especially on some of those services where you know it's going to get approved. The patient clearly needs it. It's just hoops that we have to go through um, that, you know, I, I think delays the service for the patient, certainly delays the, the reimbursement. How... In your experiences, how successful have hospitals been on trying to negotiate that sort of out of the contract? Can be very successful. The problem is you don't want to be too successful because now if you have some people because you took away you took away the constraints and now they go crazy with heart calves or CTs or anything else, suddenly you know you're they're picking your pocket, not the plan. So it has to be kind of a collaboration where if providers have a good track record of not getting a lot of denials for these kinds of services, well, then gold card them. Call them good. Let them go. Right. But if you've got some cowboys mixed in, those, those processes now are working for you because they're protecting the fund that is uh, built by the capitation payment. So right. not all not all utilization review is bad. Right. But what has happened is it's become so over the top to where people are having to pre-cert generic drugs for crying out loud. This <laughs> just doesn't make any damn sense at no, all. No, no, it doesn't. And and I would think if so, where where I would recommend managed care folks or certainly CFOs start to look is those those types of services which are pretty much turnkey, low risk, right? Not impacting the volume and certainly not going to, you know, take away or, or uh, let's say promote sort of the cowboyism, right? That maybe we would call it an overutilization. And if you could identify some of those services, hell, negotiate, you know, the, the quicker approval processes within that to cut down on those administrative costs. Um, I think that would go a long way. And frankly, I would think some of the payers would be willing to do that because they're doing it anyways to cut down on some of their internal costs. Well, that's right. You know, that's it's control they're going to give up. Yeah, it's in their interest too. And as first mover in a market, you can get some things that as second or third mover, you might not. So gold carding, um, waiver, waiver of you know prior auth or post-admission medical review, the day-to-day -day utilization review that, you know, results in, you know, trying to early discharges, all that stuff can be internalized into the, into the providers and taken away from the plans, very much so. It doesn't mean that you don't do it. It just means you do it with a heart and some common sense instead of a playbook that's really designed to just add headaches. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. You know, as, as we're talking here, Cliff, a question or a thought comes to mind. A question that I get asked by CFOs a lot is that we know we need to get into risk. We're not really quite sure where to start. And, you know, is it, does it make sense to 
to start with some type of a risk-based contract around a smaller group or a smaller proportion of our integrated network. And my response has always been, well, if you're able to identify, say, your high-performing providers, right? And obviously, the definition as to what makes up a high-performing provider is something that you have to work through. It may make sense entering into a risk-based contract just for that small group of providers where you could sort of learn, develop your expertise, measure your success, and then to begin to expand it. Are, are, you, are you seeing that as a philosophy or at least as an approach for folks getting into these risk-based contracts? Yeah, I'm not sure I agree. Um, I think it's very situation-specific um, because sometimes you're going to have high performers and low performers in tax ID. And now, you know, how do you, how do you kind of fix that? Even right. inside the same specialty group. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, so picking and choosing, you know, is, is sometimes difficult. Now, if it's an individual plan, like an ACA plan or Medicare Advantage plan where the member has chosen a narrow network, that can work. If it's a broad network plan, and now you're trying to do kind of a hidden subnetwork, that can, on the hospital side, that can that can blow up ugly because right. your big admitters suddenly are getting cut out of a block of business, and they're going to take major offense. And so, you know, right. a lot of hospital administrators have lost their jobs over things like that. <laughs> so maybe you don't parse out the network but you parse out the types of contractual arrangement, right? So, you know, if you've got a larger plan and within the plan, you can create a narrow network structure, almost like a tier, tier, two-tiered component of the plan where that narrow network allows you to assume some risk that tied into the benefit plan of the employer group. Well, then all of a sudden you've got something, right? Because then you're restricting some of the variability in the plan. I, yeah, I think that, ways, that would probably make sense. There are lots of ways to work around it from member incentives, uh, to use certain, you know, five-star doctors, or to being very clear with physicians what it takes to be a five-star doctor and giving them feedback as to where they are. All they want to know is what are the rules and how am I scored? And then they can choose to be, you know, work their way up the scoring system or not. What they don't want is a rigged game um, that just works against them. They, they, they want a fair shot. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think another, another area that is really is a, a requirement of the successful risk-based contract, and you've elaborated on this, is how you're structuring your integrated provider network. Obviously, moving to a fully in, clinically integrated model is where you want to go. But you, you have to be able to have the data to measure performance. You have to have the data to measure utilization. But you also have to have the right incentives that allows physicians to, let's say, change the care model or evolve their care model or align their, their clinical care models with the financial performance, but in a way that makes sense for the patient, right? So. I think really being able to understand what's occurring with your integrated provider network and continuing to evolve that, boy, that's a strong prerequisite. Without that, I think you're going into these contracts blind. Well, and that's the argument for scale because you're not gonna do any of that 
on three patients a month. You know, it's just it's just noise. And so you have to have a certain level of scale. And frankly, that's why I think these ACO reach models could be pretty interesting because those primary care docs are going to have way amounts of incentives to drive critical clinical decision making to their specialists and to their to the uh, facilities that they use. So with that, let me ask that question then. You know, scale, I think, is important. When you think of scale, it's obviously geographic reach, the number of providers, but it's also attributed lives, right? Absolutely. What's the attribution or the attributed lives that make sense in a risk-based contract? Where do you start with? 10,000? 15,000? 5,000? It it depends who, who the you is. You know, at the individual primary care physician level, you know, four or 500 patients would be plenty. At the specialty, you know, at the G, at GI or, or general surgery, you know, if it's going to be 15, 20 patients a month, okay, that, that starts to resonate. At the hospital, if it's going to be same, 15, 20, 30 patients a month, you know, they can begin to pay some attention to it. But they're not going to turn themselves inside out like a pretzel. You know, right. it's, it's more like, how can we give these patients a little bit more love and attention Right. Or it's somebody's job specifically to do that, not the to whole make it system. Work. I'm, I'm struck by kind of a similarity now to where we were, oh, in about 1980. You know, it, there we were moving from DRGs had just hit and average length of state was about six. You know, we're getting paid per diems or percent of charge from Blue Cross and the other plans. And there were some hospitals that said, you know, we're at peak length of stay. So we're going to turn ourselves upside down, flip to our contracts to DRG, just like Medicare, and then we're going to crush utilization and right, move right. to move to um, shorter length of stay. And they did it. And they made a lot of money because those patients, then the savings, 500 bucks a day or whatever it was, went right to the bottom line. So we're kind of in that situation now in that if you assume that revenues overall are going to continue to go up because you know we're a big bad hospital system and we're just gonna tell the payers how to do things. Well, you know that may work, it may not, but it's a risk because if your high margin services like imaging and therapies and infusions all go away, all you got less is left is the stuff you don't make any money on. Right. So maybe it's time to kind of look at that same model again and say, you know, we need to kind of lock in these underlying unit reimbursement rates because what's going to happen is there will be less volume in these other services, but we're still going to get paid for. Right. So you're locking in the reimbursement and then you're focusing on changing the mindset of how we're managing utilization and how we're managing the performance, similar to what we did, you know, years back under the old DRG structure. Flip. It also kind of flips the payer's um, proclivity to push everything away from the hospital in such a way that the hospital still makes the, the, the same net revenues they were making before yeah. with lower yeah. costs. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's that same playbook. This has been fantastic. A great discussion. And I think a, you know, anytime you talk about 
risk in a contract. Anytime you talk about changing the reimbursement structure, this catches the attention of all of our hospitals, all of our physicians, and even the payers, because, um, you know, it's a tough one. It's a tough environment that we're living in now, and I think it's only going to get it's only going to get tougher. Thank you for your time. This has been wonderful. It's been great. Appreciate it. So, you know, in, in summary, as, as Cliff mentioned, I think there's a couple of real things to take into consideration as we're considering moving into risk-based contract. I think the big piece of this is really understanding where to start, right? And we talked about a narrow network contract. We talked about the reimbursement structure, Cliff's example in terms of of a different type of reimbursement um, where maybe you're locking in what that rate would be, maybe in a, in a cap payment and giving you a chance to manage utilization, I think is an important one. But we have to take into consideration things around shifts in site of service, which for good, bad, or indifferent, we've shown that we can do it different as an industry. Things don't have to happen in the acute setting, could happen in the ambulatory. How do we then structure our reimbursement to protect that revenue and protect our margins? I think the other thing to take into consideration is our cost. If we're gonna enter into risk-based contracts, we have to reduce our cost structure internally, and then also reducing, as Cliff mentioned, the friction costs with the payers. Equally important, that's the only way that these contracts are really gonna make sense. In closing, I wanna thank you all for listening. Appreciate it. And as always, if there's any comments or feedback, uh, please don't hesitate to drop us a note. For more information, please see luminahp.com slash insights. Until next time, I'm your host, Daniel Marino. Have a great day. We want to thank you for listening to Value-Based Care Insights Podcast by Lumina Health Partners. Lumina is your partner on a journey to value-based care and all the pivots and challenges our industry faces daily. To learn more about us, visit us on LuminaHP.com. If you found value in today's conversation, subscribe to us on all major podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify, and leave us feedback. Be sure to check out our show notes at LuminaHP.com insights. Join us again where we continue to take a deep dive into what lies ahead and invite conversations with some of our colleagues and industry thought leaders on new trends that are emerging and how we continue to navigate and thrive. Until then, have a great day and stay safe.